You're listening to Two Guys Talking Wine with Michael Pincus and Andre Pru. Hey, Michael. Andre Pru. You don't even know which podcast we're about to set up because we do these in batches. We, we do. You gave me a whole list of stuff and you said, <laughs> hey, let's do this, let's do that, and let's do this. And I went, sure. And then you just started rolling tape and I'm like, uh, hi, Andre. Well, this podcast is actually one of the people that inspired the whole Legacy podcast in the first place when I came to you with the idea. And we are speaking to our second Order of Canada recipient on this podcast. So I figure if we hang around with enough of them, we will be good enough to earn one ourselves. This has got to be Tony Aspler. It is. My goodness, I'm pretty good at guessing what we've talked about. And it was amazing that we were able to keep things good, tight, and, and lean. But let's face it, Tony's got a great voice for radio. You hear He's him been on, the on radio, radio absolutely. And uh, it was, I, I just, I love talking to Tony. It was a lot of fun. Uh, he was here in the basement and uh, in the, or sorry, what we call the Niagara studio. And uh, it, was, it was great fun to talk to him. And I couldn't believe how much he drank. I could. He was, anyway. it was, he was he was two-fisting it, and that's pretty good for a guy who just got back from the Loire Valley. Without further ado, the great Tony Aspler. Andre, I think you pointed out to me uh, one day that this is not the first person with the Order of Canada. I know. Uh, you've had on the podcast. I'm hoping that it will raise our uh, esteem, profile, and respect by surrounding us with such greatness. So I have with me in the Niagara studio, Mr. Tony Aspler. Is it Sir Tony Asper yet? No, it's just plain Tony. I, I knew you just got back from England, so I wasn't 100% sure. Well, actually, talking about the Order of Canada, the first person to get the Order of Canada in the wine world was George Hostetter. There you go. Yeah. Who is um, George Hostetter? Yeah, that's a name to conjure with. <laughs> so who is George Hostetter? Uh, George Hostetter used to be um, with Bright's. Uh, he was um, a, a great uh, pioneer of the Ontario wine industry. Oh, well, there you go. I Andre, did not know that. that. Yeah, it's sort of this this stunned silence, but it's a thing I love. <laughs> I, there's a thing I love about doing these particular podcasts is that uh, I always learn something, and I'm sure everyone listening is also learning something. Well, what, what, I, I, I'm sure we all believe that Tony is like the, is it okay to say godfather of, of Ontario wine writing or wine writing in general in Canada? I've been at it a long time, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, Tony, so, let, uh, let's, let's quantify this. How long have you been writing about wine? Uh, the first article I wrote was in 1975 um, for Saturday Night Magazine about champagne, actually. And I, I guess the question, why? Why have I been writing that so long? Or, or why <laughs> sure. why did you get into it? And then why? I was working in England, um, in London. I was at the BBC. And uh, I, this was, I was in London from 61 to 76. And I wanted a hobby. <clears throat> I can almost put a, do a date on it. In, it was March 64. Okay. And I decided I needed a hobby. And I said, well, I enjoy cooking. I should learn about wine. So London was a great place to learn about wine because all the wines of the world come through London. And being close to the continent, you can zip over for France and um, Germany. So it was a good place to learn about wine. And I took a course with Grants of St. James's, which was a big uh, wine importer. And... Uh, it was all downhill from there. <laughs> so well, then you come over to Canada when? Came over in 76, back to Canada. Back to Canada, okay. Uh, and um, started working for the CBC and uh, got the Toronto Star wine column uh, and did that for 21 years. Wow. Okay. Yeah. Tony keeps trying to take a sip of this wine. I'm going yeah. to talk for a little bit so that Tony can take a sip <laughs> of it. Uh, I believe it's his first time tasting the 2017 Hansberger Rosé. Yeah, oh. I'm a great fan of um, Kelly's uh, work. Yes. There. She's yep. uh, doing a grand job. Yep, so, definitely. Uh, that, uh, 
that was uh, that was for the uh, Tony and his wife are over this evening. That was for them upstairs. But Tony uh, got the got the rose. I have a bottle here for Tony to try in a bit, but uh, we'll get to him in a minute with that. <laughs> Uh, any any questions for Tony there, uh, Andre? I'm Actually, sure you're, I, I you're do. I mean, it's bursting it, with tons of them. Well, it's interesting that you, you talk about uh, wanting to get into into wine writing and sort of needing the hobby. But I mean, the question I have is: Do you remember the first bottle of wine that you tasted that would have made you want to be serious about learning about wine? Mm, well, I was very fortunate in that I had an uncle Louis, and uncle Louis was quite wealthy, and he <laughs> on his table had all the best wines. I mean, I was tasting 1959 Mouton Rothschild in his house, and he came, and wines of that order. So having, uh, you know, tasted these and got a, got a taste for them, I said, oh, gosh, I, I've got to find out more about this. So that's my first Canadian wine was actually in 1975 on what was then Dominion Day is now Canada Day, it was a luncheon at uh, Canada House, not Canada House, McDonald House. And uh, I was sitting next to a British diplomat and came time for the loyal toast to the Queen. And they served uh, Chateau Gay Champagne. So we're looking at this, this wine bubbling in the glass and this British diplomat sitting next to me. And I said, what do you think of the wine? And he said, fine, dear boy for launching enemy submarines. <laughs> that was my first taste of, uh, you know, Canadian wine per se. But when I came back to Canada in 76, the first bottle I had was the weekend I arrived, and it was the Marischal, well, it was, no, the Van Nouveau from Inniskillen, okay. which was a, a blend of Marischal Fauchon and uh, Baco. Which would have been their, which would have been brand new for them. Yeah, it was their yeah. first, their first wine, and um, I was having dinner with an old school friend from McGill. His name was Stuart Smith. You might remember him. He used to be the head of the Liberal Party uh, when when Davis was in power. Okay. Yes. So that goes back some. So Joe, Tony wants to take another sip. Andre, you got some stuff to say? No, I, I'm just sort of uh, t taking this in right now. Mm -hmm. Oh well, maybe 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 the question I should ask you then is: uh, you got to taste Ontario wine, but when did you think that Ontario wine could be great? Because obviously, one of the things that you, you're known for is uh, organizing and, and founding the Ontario Wine Awards, right? Yeah. Well, now you're really yeah. jumping ahead. Yeah. I know, I know, we're jumping well, ahead, but I just I just kind of want to know if there's a moment when Tony knew that that Ontario wine was great. We'll yeah. back up after yeah, that. Well, in, in 1982, I did a book called Vintage Canada which meant traveling across the country wherever there was wine being made in local soil. And um, at that point, I wrote, this was 1982, I said, uh, Ontario can make great white wines, but I think we're a long way from making decent reds. And um, now I've had to eat my words uh, in the last decade in the last decade, but yeah. when you wrote that, it was yeah. 1982. So you said you were a long way off. So it all depends on, on what you considered a long way. Mm -hmm. If you thought a decade was, then maybe yeah. 92 was, was okay. Yeah. <clears throat> but it was really interesting to, to, to have that opportunity to go across the country and try all the wines that were being made. There were only five wineries in Ontario at that point. You know, they were all big. Mm -hmm. and that was before Inniskillen and uh, Stony Ridge and Shadow Day Charm came on the scene. And uh, Inniskillen got the first license. But what people don't know or don't remember is that there was another license granted at the same time to Podomer, which was a sparkling wine house. And this guy made sparkling wines and he ultimately sold the business. But uh, he got the, the, the um, license the same time in the Skilland. And is were this, they for this... launching enemy submarines as well? Yeah, pretty much. Hang okay. on, is, is, this, is this the Hungarian fellow that Jim Warren was telling us about if we listen to another one of these podcasts? Yeah, yeah, probably, yeah, the, yeah. if Jim was talk, talking about it. Yeah, Potomer. Nice memory on you, yeah. Andre. My yeah. gosh. It's called paying attention, Michael. You should try it sometime. <laughs> Oh, sorry, I'd fallen asleep in the corner over here. Were we talking to somebody? Yeah, yeah, we are. 
So you've also, while writing about wine, you've written books, not yes. just about wine. Yeah. Well, they have a, a wine theme, but you've written mystery novels. Well, I wrote uh, three novels before I got into writing mystery novels. Oh, okay. Um, and, um, yeah, I, I decided, you know, I've done a lot of research in wine one way or another, and I try to think of another way of using that research. And to um, so I decided to create a wine writer detective who travels around the world and gets involved in murders. And you, you get the wine lore of the, of the, the region plus the murder to solve. Um, the first one was Blood is Thicker Than Beaujolais, and then The Beast of Barbaresco, and Death on the Douro, and um, uh, I was uh, thinking that the next one would be One Foot in the Grave. Oh, nice, <laughs> nice. Have you started that one? I haven't, but because I, I got sidetracked into writing other things. <laughs> so you've been writing since... 80, oh. 84? No, 80, 82. 82. Yeah. yeah, well, I've been wine writing since 75. Okay. Right? Yeah, yeah. And so your first article about Ontario. Yeah, um, there were, you know, I was uh, hap in a happy place to be able to write about Ontario wine when nobody else was writing mm. about it. Nobody was taking it seriously. And I decided that this was going to be my bailiwick. I was going to learn about these wines. I was going to, to the opening of all these new wineries, rife people like that, um, and uh, just to understand what was going on. And watching Inneskillen grow, which which was quite something, because uh, I think we owe a great debt to both Carl Kaiser and uh, Don Zeraldo for what they did for the industry in their own ways. I mean, Carl was was terrific in the technical scientific side of wine and uh, there was no better marketer than Zeraldo. That's true. Yes. Yeah, I mean but but in those days there was a great uh, there was Marianissen uh, who was making really great wines um, and uh, Lenko uh, these people were pioneers and they, they planted vinifera and we owe them a, a great debt too. So, uh, Andre? Okay. Today, I thought, well, what am I going to open for Tony that he probably hasn't tasted in forever? And I'm like, no, I'm sure he's got it in his cellar already, and he's probably, I, I really can't surprise him with much. But this one has something special uh, for me, because you and I taste beside Tony every second Friday yep, for vintages. True. And uh, I've always listened to Tony. So I like this wine. I like that wine. And I'm sure you and I have bought uh, wines based on his recommendations. Would I be correct in saying that? Definitely true. Okay. So then one day I said to Tony, have you tried this wine? And he said, I really wasn't going to try that wine. And I said, I think you really should try that wine. And it turns out Tony bought a case of this wine based on my recommendation after trying it. So yeah. it's actually something not from Ontario. Uh -huh. It is uh, a, it's a German Pinot Noir. Okay. Uh, from uh, Killian Hun. And uh, yeah, Tony went out and bought a case of this. So actually, I bought two cases ultimately. Okay, there you go. <laughs> so, uh, and it was a wine that he was not going yeah. to uh, to try. I, I thought the great value, the, the, the Pinot quality in this is just sings through. It's from Baden, mm -hmm. which is the warmest part of Germany, and they got some ripeness in the fruit, and it's just just a gorgeous wine. And and I think it came through at like, uh, fifteen ninety five. Eighteen ninety five. Oh, okay, so there yeah. you go. And, and also, is... they also made a very good Pinot Gris. Yes. Killian Hun. Yeah. yeah. So that's what I thought. I thought since it's it, since it's my studio, I am going to uh, do something mm -hmm. that has a a, a special. Uh, connection with me, with myself to to Tony. Yeah, this well, is, thank you very much for opening this. And uh, you're I'll, out, I, aren't I'm you? Only, I'm sorry that you can't share this with us. It's okay. I'm drinking a fine lager that was brewed in Sudbury called Puppers. And it's got a picture <laughs> of a golden retriever on the on the can. Oh, oh, and Andre gets married very shortly too. I as we're recording this. That's right. Ah, 
But finally, so have you picked out a honeymoon spot, Andre? Yes, I wasn't allowed to pick a wine region, so we're going to Louisville, Kentucky instead. <laughs> oh, oh, so you get some good bourbon then? That's that's the plan. Okay. <laughs> well, you know that. Funny you should say that. My wife says the same thing. She says no wine regions. <laughs> we're going away, no wine. Re but I managed to find them. I we went to <laughs> Hawaii and I found a winery. Uh, you know. <laughs> that made wine on a, one of the islands there. Uh, we went to uh, St. Croix and I found a distillery. Um, so, and Ireland, we went to Ireland and I found Ireland's only winery just outside Cork. Oh, and what do hilarious. they make? It's not very good sort of German uh, style. Oh. Wines, but uh, I mean, the fact that they actually made wine in Ireland. Is, is, it's pretty impressive to yeah. begin with. So, so I guess one question. Let's get back on to, to what Tony has, has, has accomplished. Now he's two-fisting it. He's going back and forth between this rosé and and the Pinot Noir. So well, I know this is going to be released far later, but this is we're rec recording this on May 28th. It's 32 degrees in Toronto, yes. and it's usually a couple degrees warmer in St. Catherine, so I don't know what the weather's like down there right now, but it is hot, and it is yeah. it is definitely rosé weather. It's, it's very hot, and I just got back from the Loire Valley. Yes. Where it's, the weather was great, but... Uh, it wasn't uh, scorching like this. Well, it hit 30, 32, 30, uh, 33, 34 today uh, when I checked. I've checked a couple times on, on some of my apps, and some of them say it was 31. Some of them say it's 34, but it's still bloody hot. So uh, we're not even we're not even going to sit outside, and you know how much I love my backyard. That's true. So so we're we're approaching the 25th anniversary of the Ontario Wine Awards. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. uh, this year would have been the, the obviously 24th. the 24th. <clears throat> um, so 25 years ago, let's let's say by the time this is released, the uh, the awards will have been uh, given out for uh, 2018. Uh, so, what made you start the awards 25 years ago? Well, I felt that there was something that was needed in order to, first of all. Advertise the industry, to promote the industry, and also to give consumers uh, an idea about what was good and what was worth buying. And uh, there wasn't any, uh, you know, uh, competition at that point uh, that sort of zeroed in on what Ontario was doing. So I said, you know, let's do something. And the very first uh, few years it was, was with. Air Ontario, with the airline that uh, mm -hmm. serviced Ontario, but then that collapsed, um, and uh, so I had to find uh, another sponsor, which I never did. <laughs> <laughs> so we just get individual sponsors for the prizes, for the different prizes. Mm -hmm. uh, but it started off quite small, and it just like topsy, it just grew, and now we have so uh, when you entries. What was, so I guess 24 years ago, that puts us 90... 95. 95. I love you when you're trying to do math. Oh, shut up, Michael. You probably have a phone with a calculator right there, and you're still going, I, 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 I. Yeah, whatever. The question I have is, how many wineries did you have entering the first year? In the first year, there was about 10 or 11, something like that. So how many wines is that, probably? Well, there's only... You know, it was under 100 wines, okay. um, uh, but it just it got bigger and bigger. And this year we had 450 odd wines, um, <laughs> a lot of new wineries, uh, which it was very encouraging to see. Uh, and it always surprises me how many people want to go into the wine business, knowing, as I do, how difficult it is. Yes. Uh, and it was quite remarkable and some really really fine wines and some of the results are really interesting sort of highlighting some of the smaller players also the big the big boys i mean that's it i mean I, I, like having judged the award show and michael having judged it in the past uh for myself even not having quite the experience that either one of you have it's always a surprise to see how people do on both sides of the spectrum i mean exalted winning um 
you know, best Chardonnay over $20 for that unprecedented uh, winning yeah. streak there. And he works with one or two barrels every year. Yes. Yeah. Uh, he doesn't like Chardonnay. I once talked to him. He just doesn't <laughs> like the grape. Uh, yeah. He's a Pinot guy. It's more for Exalted. the rest of us. Yes. But, uh, and also the, the fact that uh, how well the county is coming on. They have their, their challenges with the weather with their winters, but uh, there's some really good wines being made in the county. Rose Hall Run, uh, Grange and uh, Prince Edward, uh, some of them are making some excellent, excellent wines. Can't not mention Hinterland with their sparkling. Hinterland, absolutely. Uh, that sparkling stuff that he's doing is fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yep. Uh, probably, I'm pretty sure he is is now the still and still the only sparkling, solo sparkling wine house in the province. But even there are some ice not... wine producers doing just that. Yeah, yeah. But, but I think it's not they're the only, the only one he's doing just sparkling wine. It's not yes, the only it's... thing he does anymore. He's got that that red herring Syrah. Oh, Co yeah. Correct. But I mean the the real thing is that is is sparkling wine. That's his that's his bread and butter. Yes, that's yeah. true. So Yeah, and I think that our climate is perfect for, for sparkling wines. Yes. I mean the fact that you have to pick the wines the grapes when they are have good acidity and so you don't, don't let them ripen too much and I think that is our strength the other thing that I think that is that we should be doing more with Gamay yes uh, I think that that is a grape that um, we can do very well preach oh brother Tony yeah and I think it's just a question of getting the consumer to enjoy something that is not Cabernet Sauvignon Merlot uh, or Syrah or Cabernet Franc. Cabernet Franc, I was tasting in the, the the Loire Valley, making some excellent, what I just brought here for dinner yep, tonight. Yep. And you'll taste it yourself because it's um, a really uh, interesting to compare what the Loire Valley does with Cabernet Franc as to what we in Ontario do with it. I, I know, mean, Andre, you said you're a fan of the Loire Valley's Cab Franc. I, I am, and I mean, it's the thing that I find really interesting about um, Ontario uh, and Ontario Cab Franc in, in general is um, there's definitely a place for a Cab Franc on the world stage, on the world stage. I mean, it doesn't get as warm as it does in Bordeaux, and I think the fruit uh, consistently ripens a little bit better than the Loire Valley, so we definitely fall somewhere in the middle. And I think that's, you, you say Gamay, and I, I agree with you on that, but I think Cabernet Franc would probably be an easier uh, easier sell. Yeah, yeah, because of the Cabernet Association. Um, but uh, the other thing is, I, I think that we should be making more rosé, you know, more um, purpose-made rosé, not just as an afterthought. I well, think uh, Malavoir has shown that uh, we can make terrific rosés. Definitely. They make three. Yeah. You know, the Ladybug, the Vivant, and the Moira Vineyard, and I think all of them have their place. Yeah, and all different are... styles, too. It's, it's it's fascinating to taste them all all side by side. It's sort of a, a rosé for uh, a rosé for everyone. Yeah. And, the, and you know, what Malavoir does that's, that's pretty impressive, if we can go off on a tangerine here for a second, is that, that when they jump onto a grape or a style, they really go whole hog onto it. You know, they have uh, at least three different kinds of Chardonnay. They have at least three different kinds of, um, of Gamay. Oh, Gamay, yeah. Um, <clears throat> I haven't tried their Pinots in, in forever, I think. Uh, but, I mean, they really jump all, on, all like, mm -hmm. full hog onto these, these grapes. The other thing that surprised me is how well that Syrah does in Ontario. And I really didn't think that this was a grape that, right, you know, you need a hot climate for Syrah. Uh, but I think uh, what um, Creekside and what Cassava are doing with uh, Syrah is, is really phenomenal. Yeah. Well, maybe just to take a step back about Rosé, I think this would be an interesting question to ask you, especially as a writer, because you've been around to see sort of the rise and the fall, and I think we're on the rise again of Rosé. Uh, do you? What, how do you think that things have evolved with, um, with Rosé since you started writing? Well, I think that rosé was an afterthought. It was, you know, let, let's saigne the grapes, let's bleed off some juice and, in order to concentrate the color and flavor of, uh, you know, of, of our pinot. Uh, so what do we do with what we bled off? You know, okay, well, let's just 
mix it with a bit of Chardonnay or something like that and make a rosé out of it. Uh, but now I think people are taking the grape, the, 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 the uh, style seriously and saying, okay, we're going to make a rosé that is a rosé and it's not the bastard child of, of a red wine. Yeah, it's not just the bleed off. They're mm -hmm. actually picking the grapes thinking, you know, yeah. we are going to make rosé and we're going to make damn fine rosé in doing it. Yeah. Uh, and then be damned with whatever, you know, we do with the grapes afterwards. It's really interesting to see the difference in color of rosé from house to house. Um, and Malavoirs are like Provence. They're very, very pale. Chateau de Charme is quite deep in color. Uh, so there's a real gradation of color in... I think the pale pink, though, is coming back, like, in a big way. Mm -hmm. uh, having seen a lot of rosés this year... The, the pale is is much more prevalent than, than the deep color. Mm -hmm. And even uh, Malabar's Ladybug seems to be slightly less red, let's go, yeah. than it has been yeah. in the past. And the nice part about the Ladybug is that it's getting drier each and every year. Well, this is my my bu my bugbear. <laughs> it is, you know, people who leave, leave residual sugar in rosé, which, you know... I know it's a commercial thing that helps to sell the wine, but I like rosés which are crisp and tart and cranberry uh, flavored because in a hot day like today, you need something that refreshes. You need good acidity and good energy in the wine. And since we, we since you are trying the uh, 2017 Hansberg, you mm -hmm. might as well give a little review if you like yeah. it. Well, the, the, the color is quite pale. It's sort of Provençal style in color. Um, th there's actually some minerality in the nose and on the palate. Here he goes, taking his 10th sip. <laughs> Yellow cherry flavor, very crisp, very refreshing. Yeah. That's a terrific rosé. Yeah. She does a great job every single year. Mm -hmm. so. Well, you talked about what what you like, Tony. But one thing that's interesting is is you would have seen um, the listeners. White Zinfandel. The listenership and <laughs> the. Well, I mean, I was gonna, I was, I was going to get to that. But uh, do you think? How do you think the average consumer has evolved since you started writing about wine? Well, I think there's certainly more sophistication. Uh, when I started writing, people would ask for white wine, uh, and then. If you're given a bit more uh, sort of information and education, they began to ask for Chardonnay uh, or Puy Fuise or something like that. So uh, there is the consumer is getting much more educated. And I think that uh, these days, the millennials are, are probably because they ha are exposed to so much information about wine and which is accessible. They just go on the net and. Uh, read about these things that it's much easier to learn about wine than when I started in it. I want, I want you to know uh, Andre that Tony here is the consummate professional because he takes a few sips of the rosé goes back to the pinot, takes a few sips of the pinot, goes back to the rosé <laughs> it's amazing it's not, not just a no. single glass man yeah, but I don't have them in the, my mouth at the same time. No, he doesn't do that. I can say that. So the first winner of the Ontario Wine Awards, do you remember the red wine of the year? Oh, my God. You're talking 24 years ago. Um, we didn't actually have a wine of the year to begin with. Um, it, you know, the whole thing has evolved a lot because we were doing this by, by wine style. Okay. Um, and then we found that, for instance, Chardonnay, we, because we were getting so much Chardonnay, we had to break it down into three categories. Unoaked Chardonnay, Chardonnay's under $20, and Chardonnay's over $20. Uh, just to, so you, you didn't have a, a kind of Chablis-esque Chardonnay up against a, in a real barrel-fermented wine, because it didn't make any sense. And I've even pulled up the results, uh, the Ontario Wine Awards website, ontariowineawards.ca, have all the results, but the oldest results go back to 2004 on the website. <laughs> wow, you've done your research. That's great. No, he's just, I'm just on the computer, computer right, right now. now. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's what it really. Okay. Let's see. Barrel so, aged, barrel aged Chardonnay award went to 
Laley Vineyard 2002 Chardonnay Limited Edition. Wow. Uh-huh. Daniel Lenko Estate Chardonnay Old Vines French Oak. The uh, Silver Award and Strewn 2002 Chardonnay French Oak Bronze. How did I know you were just going to jump on that Chardonnay thing? Reserve Chardonnay <laughs> goes to Southbrook Winery. All right, all right. Triumphus. Okay, I guess I'm done with that. Um, maybe another question about how the uh, the consumer has evolved, because one thing that's a little distressing to me as someone who has chosen to write about Ontario wine uh, is it still does feel like, especially in the sommelier community in the city of Toronto, a bit of a, a negative uh, perception of the, the Ontario wine industry as a whole, either being too expensive or just uh, not being able to deliver in quality? How do you think the public perception has evolved uh, on how they view the industry as a whole since you've started writing? I think that, that when I started, it was the same thing, you know, that people... Um, wanted to have European wines. Uh, and so the wineries put out wines uh, that looked and tasted like European wines uh, as far as possible and German style ones, you know, with with res residual sweetness. But um, you have to hand it to the consumer. They're not stupid. And, you know, uh, they know when something is good and something is worthwhile. A lot of Ontario wines are are overpriced when you look at what you can get from other regions around the world, you know, in the same, uh, I know it's, it's expensive. The land is expensive. Labor is expensive. Uh, you, you know, when you deal with uh, countries like Chile or Portugal, that you can get wines, which are cheaper. But when you think of what you can do for the, the economy here, just by buying a bottle of wine, and it doesn't have to be an expensive wine, but, uh, it's worthwhile to actually shop at home. I can't argue with that. No, absolutely. Do you think that the um, the market perception is starting to shake away though, and uh, and and more people are starting to turn to local, like especially with the farm to table table movement happening? I think that that's that certainly helped, and the fact that the uh, the wines are now in Ontario available in farmers markets. Uh, you know, again, makes them accessible. Uh, but I think there's nothing better than to actually see the wine where it is grown. So wineries have to attract people, consumers down to wine country. And what's the best way to do that is make it is to make it fun, you know, to, to have events, to have good restaurants, to have uh, whatever, you know, um, to try and drive people down. If you, let's, let's put it this way, if you got married in a vineyard, that has a special connotation for you and you will be linked to that wine for the rest of your life, as long as you're together. Yeah. Uh, you, you will keep doing that. So Even after you break up, it's, yeah. you're still linked to that yeah. somehow. <laughs> it's, it's true. So, uh, Maybe they should start having divorce parties as well. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so, all right. So, um, I had a question, but it's it's run through my head, Andre. You That's got another one, really quickly? Um, no, I mean that that was. It's just sort of interesting to see how things ha have evolved. I mean, I guess in 2018, what do you think has been the biggest uh, change in the Ontario uh, Ontario wine industry since the beginning? That's sort of setting us up for success in the future. I think it's the uh, the quality of the winemaking, and by that I mean the fact that the winemakers are not just putting you know grapes, stomping grapes, and putting it in a barrel. That there is a scientific approach to winemaking, and that the winemakers have traveled or have come from other countries to make wine in Ontario because it's a great place, there's a cool climate uh, region to make wine. So I think that it's really the expertise of the uh, of the winemakers. That's that's uh, because originally it was just farmers who planted grapes, you know, and said, "Okay, um, I'm going to make my own wine." This is how most of them started in the early days, uh, and that I think, and we owe a lot to to the schools like um, Brock and. Um, 
and uh, Niagara College who are educating winemakers, and uh, they're leaving. Unfortunately, a lot of them are go- going away, going away, and or being snapped up in, uh, by other cool climate regions. So we talked about certain certain trends that have come and gone within the industry. So when New Zealand started making a big push with uh, Sauvignon Blanc. We saw a lot of Sauvignon Blanc come through the industry. Uh, Pinot Grigio, we've seen Pinot Gris just wipe through the industry as, as well. Mm-hmm. Um, sparkling wine, uh, another thing that's the, really on the uptick, rosé on the uptick. What is a trend that you are not happy to see? The trend I'm not happy to see is uh, pet nap. That is, <laughs> you know, the uh, wines made without sulfur, have the Petillon Nature Pet Nap. Uh, they taste to me like a cocktail of uh, cider and sherry. And this is not a drink that I would like to put in my mouth, frankly. And I know that the sommeliers are excited by these new wave wines, the new wines made without sulfur. Um, but Frankly, you know, I'm a, tr- a traditionalist. I like to see wines made properly. What about orange wine? Anything that you want to say about that? That's, uh, that, that's a ballywick of mine that I really am not a big fan of. Neither am I. And this, uh, is, this is in the same basket as Petnat wines. Uh, you know that um, I really don't like the taste, frankly. Uh, and I would rather spend my dollar somewhere else with an orange wine. Andre, as a millennial, any thoughts? I, I, I do find it, it fascinating, but I mean, the thing is, I don't think I'm a, I'm a typical millennial because I think as both of you know, when I fell in love with Ontario wine, I was reading words written by the two of you and uh, Conrad Edgebick and uh, Chris Waters at, at the time when I first moved to the province. And, you know, I've had a chance to do quite a bit of travel, and I think it's interesting that people are trying to evolve winemaking. And it's also fascinating that people are trying to sort of simplify the process, because let's face it, especially with the larger wineries, um, you do have a lot of tools at your disposal uh, to be able to manipulate a wine and make sure it turns out a certain way. And I've said that before, even on, on Newstock 1010 when I spoke, that's for better or for worse it's tools that are available and that doesn't necessarily make a wine good or, or bad but i mean it's sort of interesting to see that in, in my opinion some of the best wines kind of strike that fine line between respecting an, an old more traditional way of making wine but also acknowledging that new technology exists but i mean there's nothing wrong or boring about drinking wines that are well made and don't feel like they're unfinished now that being said oh. i am working on a piece uh, for a magazine about the pet nats in the province and I was extremely surprised by a couple of the bottles that were sent to me there's a couple of bottles that when I opened them made a hell of a mess in my kitchen and I don't know how that's going to work in a restaurant but I'm kind of I don't know I'm kind of all over the place on this if, if it tastes good I'm going to swallow it <laughs> well I, I think wine is the most natural of beverages and if it's well made without recourse to, to chemicals, that's fine. But you really do need sulfur to give the wine ageability, to as a stabilizer, Protection and for, antioxidant. For travel, yes, and an anti uh, uh, antioxidant, uh, anti um, what do you call it? Um, to stop it from oxidizing, losing, yeah, yeah, oxidizing, right. losing color, uh, and to give it some shelf life. But um, I'm always suspicious of people who make wine without sulfur because these are wines that are not going to last um, and are not going to actually uh, ultimately taste that good. Well, the, sto- the story I, I remember hearing is that uh, I can never remember his name, and I'm sorry, I think it's Jens or something who who runs um, Frog Pond. Yep. And he informed me that, that he did a, a, a little test with this this sulfur thing because they were saying that sulfur protects wine. And he has a, a brother back in the old country and he made uh, a 12-pack of wine, six of them that he put sulfur in, and six of them he did not. And his brother said to him, 
the ones that had sulfur arrived perfect. They were delicious. I could drink them. They were no problem. But the ones that were unsulfured uh, were just, they lacked anything that, that he thought was wine and could not drink them, and they went down the, the drain. So sulfur yeah. does a little bit of yeah. uh, protecting in, in travel. So if you're planning to send the wine anywhere, that's what the sulfur does, if nothing else. Well, you know, the, the, this thing on the back label saying, you know, uh, contains sulfites. Yeah. Well, everything contains sulfites if it's fermented. The act of fermentation creates sulfites. So basically it should say guaranteed to contain sulfites. <laughs> So, so we've talked about trends that, that we're not happy about. I guess what are the trends? We've talked about a few trends that we are happy about. What, what trends do you see hopefully coming in the future and that you are excited about? Well, I'm excited about you know, the, the, the regeneration or the reinterest, as it were, in sparkling wines, because I love sparkling wines. Uh, and Ontario is beautifully placed to make great sparkling wine. So that, that's great. I would like to see Gamay getting its due, uh, people making better Gamay, more Gamay, and uh, Pinot Noir. I think when the vines get a little older, uh, we're going to be making some spectacular Pinot Noir. But I think we have to be cognizant of the fact that perhaps with global warming, we're going to have to build uh, or, or plant higher higher elevations for cooler exposures. Um, but I think we are going through the golden age of Ontario wines. We are making wines that are better and better each year. And I, for one, am really excited about that. Cool. I paused for Andre's <laughs> input. No, I mean it's it, it, but I mean it is interesting. That, I mean these are the 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 trends that I'm excited for, and it's sort of interesting. The more that you get a, a little bit of experience, you get a chance to travel. It's been the thing um, that I've enjoyed learning about Ontario wine is that we are making world class wines on par with virtually everywhere that I've visited. But it, it's the other thing that's interesting um, is that wine, when made well, really does express the region we talked about cabernet franc cabernet franc from niagara doesn't taste like loire nor does it taste like bordeaux it tastes like niagara as with right. the other two regions so it, it is interesting to see how that goes i think that's a good point andre that i think that we have to develop a, a niagara or county style uh we haven't talked about uh, lens you know lake erie north shore uh but I think we have to consider what makes a wine Ontarian as opposed to something that, you know, is a knockoff of Bordeaux or Burgundy or, or uh, the Rhine. We have to think about what creating, you know, a homegrown style of wine. Well, now, I think we're, we're starting to, to find that because for, you know, we are still a young industry. What, 40 years but I mean, we're, we're the same age as, as Oregon, and Oregon have have taken Pinot Noir to the end zone and spiked the football. I mean, we're, I, we're also the same age as, as New Zealand, if you really take it too, and they've taken go. Sauvignon Blanc and Pinot Noir in, in, into the end zone, and they've taken they've started to uh, to carry the ball for Syrah as well. Well, I have a so bit of a, I have a bit I of think, a theory that I'd I like think to... there's a, there's a lot of problems here in Ontario that, that we we really shouldn't start, I guess you know picking at the scab. But we really have to, I think the, the winemakers that we have now are starting to give Ontario its identity. I think we, Ontario does have its identity. And if, if we're going to say it's a problem, and I put it into air quotes, is that I we do too. so many Nobody things well. can say well. that I did. But I mean, <laughs> but I mean yeah. it's, it's, it's the fact that we do so many things well. And I mean, we saw it in our, uh, if you listen to the podcast that we did about Chardonnay and, and Oregon, Everything in um, in Oregon is so Pinot Noir oriented that they still haven't found their footing for white grapes, and it's the same thing I found doing uh, my research for my piece about Chile and Sauvignon Blanc. They yeah. they have seventy percent of the grapes planted in Chile are red grapes. They don't even have a lot of white 
grapes planted in that climate because everyone has gone gangbusters on, on the red fruit. So maybe it's just going to take a little bit longer for Ontario to find its footing because we do so many things well. Well, I would put my money on uh, sparkling wine uh, and uh, rosé sparkling wine in particular. Oh, fantastic stuff. Oh, I have a question for, for, uh, for Tony. You and I have done two podcasts on it. Okay. Let's see what Tony's thoughts are. Uh, Riesling, on the rise or on the fall in Ontario? Or, or stagnant? The problem with Riesling is that wine writers love it and the consumer doesn't. Because the consumer doesn't understand it, doesn't know whether it's going to be sweet or dry or whatever. Uh, we make fabulous Rieslings here. There's no question. These Rieslings can rival anything anywhere in the world, including Germany. The problem is that stylistically, we have to con you know, inform the, the, the consumer what they are drinking. You know, what if, is it? I, is it semi-sweet? Is it off dry? Is it what? What is it? Um, it is the most versatile food wine, after all, and it's a great wine. And we, we, it is our strength, after all. I don't know how we can get this message across. I, well, wine, I, I, wine writers <laughs> love. We, 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 yeah, we, we love Riesling, and it just seems. I, th I think at the moment we're on a on a downward, not not as far as the making of it. I think we always make good, uh, solid Riesling. But I also I think love the, the fact that is a little tired of Ontario Riesling, and now they're moving to Chardonnays, Pinot Noirs. Pinot I'd Gris. like to hope Pinot Gris, especially. So Sauvignon Blanc, I think, is starting to uh, starting to see a rise in Ontario. You know what? I was very surprised by um, the Marsan that was made by Philip Dowell at Q. At Q. Yes. Uh, I mean, this I was thought was a sensational wine, and it's not recognized. Variety by the VQA, which is is it Marsan or Roussan that is Marsan. not Marsan is not recognized as the it's 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 strange we we recognize pretty much everything else and that one's the one we've decided not yeah, to no that was a great wine that Phil, Phil McDowell made Phil Dow uh, yeah I really enjoyed that yeah it was a good wine well Tony what do you what do you think is the one thing that needs to happen or if there's do you think that there's anything that needs to change to help position the future of the Ontario wine industry for greater success and growth because it is exciting to see a lot of new labels popping up but it's not like the industry is growing rapidly at this stage well you know that's the question that is in the minds of all the winemakers and winery executives how how to capture the consumer palate uh, and it has to be done, I think, in terms of the total wine experience. It's not just the wine, but it's the wine lifestyle. Uh, cooking with wine, tasting food with wine, and sharing wine with friends. I think it, wine is not something that is just on its own. It's something, you know, that's a social lubricant, as it were. I think we have to, if I were, if, Let's say if I were running a winery, I would say, let's get the people down to the wine. Let's give them a great experience, a food and wine experience. I think that's the way to go. Well, there we go. Andre, I have one last question for Tony. Could we have talked to Tony all night? We really could. Yep. But here we go. My last question. Tony, you've basically traveled the world uh, in, in search of wine and great wines. If I'm to ask you your top three places to visit, the you know bucket list for anybody who is uh, thinking about doing wine travel of any sort, where would you say you've got to visit these three places in the world for wine? Okay, for number one, Verona. I go to the Bottega del Vino wine bar where I want my ashes scattered on the floor, for <laughs> um, an experience of how the Italians drink wine and enjoy wine and food. Um, great uh, Amarone, great, uh, just an amazing experience. Um, Italy, for sure. Verona, 
in Veneto, number one. Um, Burgundy, yeah, but I mean that's that's the uh, ultimate place for both red and white wines for Pinot Noir and Chardonnay. Expensive, but you know you have to go there. And I would say South Africa. Wow. Uh, that one I because, didn't see coming. Yeah, because they are making terrific wines. We're not seeing them. We're not. Uh, in, they're not really coming into our market, but they're making wonderful wines at great prices. Tony, I want to thank you very much for uh, for giving us the time. It's long overdue that we've had this conversation, and uh, I guess much su success. Maybe we'll have to talk to you leading up to the twenty uh, fifth. Oh, yeah. uh, edition of the Ontario Wine Awards and, and, and see what's what with that because I'm sure it's going to be a big deal. Yeah, so maybe uh, January or February of uh, 2019. We'll get you on again and we'll okay. talk up the 25th uh, anniversary. Excellent. Thank you, Tony. Thank you. I'm going to have a sip of this Killian Hun Pinot Noir. You know, the thing that I don't remember him talking about. No, I think he covered everything. <laughs> you know, I think we might have to have Tony on again at another time for maybe one of our uh, Stump the Stoop podcasts that we're hoping to do, or maybe just oh, to... I think he'd have a lot of fun on that. I think even just to taste through some older Ontario wines with him, because I, I'm always fascinated as someone who didn't have to see the growing pains of the industry, to see someone like Tony who saw the sunshine in the, in the clouds, right? Found in the Ontario Wine Awards when he did... I think is one of the most important contributions to the industry for sure. Yeah. Uh, and it's, it's a very um, unique awards where there is only three winners, unless there's a tie, of course, but there's only three winners, one per category. Yeah. You don't see that very often. Usually you see a whole bunch of people getting golds and silvers and bronzes, but the, the single winner is a real, uh, that's a tough competition. Well, and I mean, if we want to get in, into the competitions, I'm sure we can do that on, a, on an upcoming podcast as well. I find that the, the judging panels, we score the wines more harshly on the Ontario Wine Awards than we definitely would as writers. Well, I, I believe that, that you have to. I, I think because you've got so many wines in, in one place. But, of course, this is not a podcast about scoring wines at a no. at a competition that's for coming time. up yeah at a later date uh so you can subscribe to this podcast on itunes leave a comment uh share it with your friends we would love to hear what you think about it so angry phone calls to michael <laughs> and emails and facebook posts and the rest of it i'm michael pincus of michaelpincuswinereview.com i'm andre pru from andrewinereview.ca take it away michael Oh, follow us on social media. We have a Twitter account, Two Guys Talking Wine. Oh, you're just uh, and as always, good, good night. night. I said it louder than you. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe to Two Guys Talking Wine on iTunes.